0: explain why we are the way we are, the older generation (laughs) didn't wear the helmets. But I'd like to talk about a piece of the armor of God this morning, and it is the helmet of salvation. And it is interesting, and we'll take a little bit of a look at the helmets and a little bit of the history, the changes of it, Not, not in great detail, but we will take a look at that. What it was for, obviously the protection of the head. But this is the helmet of salvation. And this is the believer's mind is protected and secure in regard to salvation, to his salvation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians 6, I do want to go back. Uh, at least to uh, verse 12, uh, and read through the verses that we've already covered, just making a comment or two in review before we get to this piece. The reason we need to put on the armor of God, verse 12 tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore, as a result of that, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And then having done everything to stand firm, verse 14, stand firm, And that is our responsibility in spiritual warfare. You will read a lot of things and hear a lot of things about spiritual warfare. But the biblical teaching on spiritual warfare is our job is to stand firm with the armor of God. Not to go out and exercise demons and look for those territorial demons. That's all made up by the current Spiritual warfare movement. Here is one of the most mature churches. We know that because we've gone through five chapters, six chapters of it, and the the, uh, teaching of it is lofty, our position in Christ. And if there was a group that he was going to tell, look, you've you've got to learn how to cast out demons, you've got to learn how to do this stuff, he would have said it. But instead, he tells them, this mature group, to put on the armor of God and stand firm. And at verse 14 then says, stand firm, therefore, number one, having girded your loins with truth. And this armor of God is the spiritual, metaphorical idea of the Christian's character. And we are to have truth. Not only the truth of God's word, but the truth in living, living truthfully, speaking truthfully. And we are girded with that. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the breastplate of righteousness to do what is right in our practical everyday lives. These are the things that will keep us from allowing Satan an inroad into our lives to trip us up and cause us to fall. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we explain this, this is not only us sharing the gospel. How important is that? But this is particularly in that we have understood the gospel and salvation. And this is what makes us secure in Christ. This is what gives us peace. And when people see the peace in our life in spite of what's going on in the world, they're wondering why, and we tell them Christ. Verse 16, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which is you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so this is really what's happening. Satan is shooting these darts at us, whether they are in Thought life, or whether they are in situations that happen in our lives, they could even be through another person. Be careful that we don't assign all of the responsibility to the person because we know who's behind it all. But with the shield of faith, we're able to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. And now we come to verse 17, and there's two in verse 17, but we're just going to take a look at the first. And, and in the Greek, it's, and you yourselves must take the helmet of salvation. And we'll see how important that is. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much in your word. There's so much to be taught. Father, help me with managing the time. Not that there's anything wrong with long sermons, but that we teach this in a way that we have enough time to teach it. And Father, we pray that these very important things will be uh, brought across by the Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you for it and pray that we have the helmet of salvation upon ourselves as believers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look then at the beginning of this, and it really does begin with, and you yourselves take, it's an imperative, which means you must do it. Paul's not saying, hey, you know, I don't want to offend anyone. If you don't mind, you know, but if not, that's fine. Maybe you could put this piece on. Coming from God, it's you must take this for yourselves, you yourselves, and it's in the middle, meaning that there's a responsibility. Did you know there's a responsibility for us as believers in many, many things in the Bible? Yes, we look to God, his power. We look to God and the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, but there has to be joint cooperation, not in our salvation, but in our sanctification. And putting on the armor of God is one of those facets. Well, it begins then with the helmet. And the helmet is perikephalia. Peri is the Greek word which means around. And the other word for kephale means the head. So it's that which is around the head. Simple enough to understand. But if you think of it from a military standpoint, and that's what we have, a military standpoint, it is a helmet to protect the head on all sides now, here we have one that was called the Monte Fortino. Uh, they used this 3 B.C. to 1 A.D., so it could have been around the time that Paul was writing this. Um, but it went through a process, just like even helmets today are, are being upgraded. And one of the things that they're upgrading them for is to prevent concussions. Well, that would have been the least that the Roman soldiers had to worry about. They were made of leather, some of them were, and then thick metal plates were put on them, kind of like scales. Others were made from heavy molded metals. And then later, cheek pieces were added. And so we have this one here, which is the imperial Gallic uh, helmet, and probably most like what Paul was looking at when he was penning this. So he's looking at the Roman soldier, he's thinking of what we need in the armor of God, he's looking at scripture, each of these has a scripture to it back in the Old Testament, and he comes to the helmet and says, what would we have to do with the helmet, the helmet of salvation? So this is most likely what he was looking at, now here is a modern replica of the imperial one, really made all shiny, and maybe when they had parades they had helmets like this, but anyway... We're going to be thinking along the lines of this type of a helmet. Well, as we think of a helmet and in military, and even our soldiers today are to wear headgear, uh, the idea is because an injury to the head at any time can put a soldier out of commission. At best, to confuse him and daze him, or to give him a concussion, put him unconscious, but in that day, at worst, to kill him or decapitate him, which the helmet wouldn't really work unless they're kind of squeezing themselves down into the full armor, the full armor of God. What did they have to worry about? Well, blows to the head from catapults, And uh, Of course, in the movies, we see the catapults in these big, humongous rocks, but they would throw uh, with different-sized catapults, different-sized metals, rocks, anything that they could hurl, and if they would hit one of these soldiers in the head, that would put them out of commission. They also would have needed these helmets for hand-to-hand combat, where they would either use spears or clubs or fighting with the small sword, the makaira which is exactly what we'll be talking about in the next part of this verse. The sword of the spirit is a machaira. It's not the long sword. It's the short sword for hand-to-hand combat. And, and hitting someone in the head would certainly do what it was intended to do. But one also writes about cavalry, that the horsemen would carry long swords, ramphaliah. And these swords were about three to four feet and they'd just come riding by on their horses and they'd just take a leap and a whack at them and they would either split the skull or decapitate them. This was war after after all. A bit gruesome, but let me say, no more serious than the warfare that we go through daily from the enemy, Satan. Well, It is called the helmet of salvation. So this gives us an idea of what he's thinking about. So as I said before, it's the believer's mind that needs to be protected. And the believer's mind that needs to be protected in regard to salvation. Now let me say it doesn't mean that this is the first thing we need. This piece of armor, because this armor is saying that we need to come to Christ. No, we need to come to Christ before this, before we put on the armor of God. In fact, if you don't know Christ, if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, the armor of God will do you no good. This helmet of salvation is talking about, I think, an understanding of salvation, an assurance of salvation, and the security of salvation. Because we're supposed to stand firm because of it now having said that if this was the idea that we had to trust Christ and this is what it was it was an evangelistic verse here then it would be very the very first piece that we would have to put on so as I see this and I'm going to talk about three aspects maybe we'll get all of them today Three aspects that the enemy attempts to confuse and discourage the believer are understanding salvation, having the assurance of salvation, and knowing the security in salvation through the Lord. I am going to talk about salvation for just a moment. I am going to talk about what it means, and I've been wanting to preach on this for quite some time because... I have noticed in the last 10 years or so a decline in the church of understanding what the gospel is and what salvation is. You will hear so many things from, oh, I had an experience. Well, I don't know. That may be good or not, depending on what the experience is, but that's not salvation. Or they may say, well, you know, That's what my parents believe, and that's what I believe. Therefore, I'm saved. No. Salvation is a little more than just saying, oh, that's your doctor's statement. Yeah, let me sign that, and I'll be a part of it. There's many other things, too, that we hear. In fact, what was shocking was I heard some time ago that an evangelical school asked its students to simply write down an explanation of the gospel. When the professor read their explanations, he was shocked because very few could articulate the gospel, articulate the gospel in a simple way. And when we talk to people in our office as elders, they want to become members, we're only wanting to hear one thing. I believe that I was a sinner and I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and I trusted him as my savior. That's all we want to hear. But many times we hear so many other things, and and then just one day I, you know, you hear you hear, and I'm not saying I'm not saying from my office, but things that I've hear uh, people saying. Well, I, uh, you know, just had an experience one time, and I just I was worried, and all of a sudden this peace came over me, and uh, that was that was how I received Christ. You know, I I at times am blunt with people, and I want to get to. To the nitty-gritty, and I say, so has there been a time when you've trusted Christ as your Savior? I'm not sure that's the best approach because almost 90% of them say, oh, yes, followed by I had this experience of uh, overwhelming peace. Or you will hear people say, yes, I've been baptized. I, I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I asked you if you trusted Christ as your Savior. And the idea is, is that we, as a believer, we are commanded to be baptized. But as a believer, it's a declaration that we've already trusted Christ. And so there is this confusion going on. And I've noticed it and been noticing for quite a long time. And so I want to talk about understanding salvation. What is it simply? Because you can't have assurance of salvation if you don't understand salvation. And furthermore, if we are to put on feet that are shod with the gospel of peace and we're to share the gospel, wouldn't you think we'd need to know it? You know, this is one of the reasons why as a church you have to read our doctor's statement and we hear your testimony because that enables you that you could be a teacher. But if you're a teacher, you have the responsibility to bring salvation to your Sunday school students or to your students. And so you need, we need to know that you're saved and we really need to know that you know what the gospel is and can share it. And so I, I just want to spend a little moment talking about an understanding of it. Now, let me use some big words here. The heart of salvation is substitutionary atonement. I, I'll break that down. But that's what it is. It's there is a substitute for a sinner. And that substitute is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the sinners, but he takes our sin and he takes our place. It's also called vicarious. Now, Schaeffer says those are the same synonyms, really. But it's the idea that Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. And having died for our sins... The wages of sin is death. Having died for our sins, he provides atonement, the taking away of sin, the forgiveness of sin, the eternal life that we receive. And yet when you hear answers of Christians outside or wherever and they just have no clue. They 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 say something, and, and a lot of times it it's emotional. And I'm not saying when you come to Christ it's not emotional. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying you can't be emotional and and miss the gospel. Well, substitutionary atonement: when a sinner understands that salvation comes only when someone stands in the place of his punishment and atones for his sin. He has grasped the central meaning of salvation, simply put, as Charles Spurgeon put it, it, comes down to four words: Christ died for me in my place. That is the understanding you know I, I shared this before, but I one time had a guy and we were talking about salvation. His mother was a believer, he was like fifty years old, I was talking to him and and uh, you know. Are you a believer? Oh, yes. He said, one time I was driving down the road, hit a patch of ice. The car started to spin, and I yelled out, Lord, save me. And he said, and the car straightened out. That's when I got saved. That is not salvation. And there's all kinds of other misunderstandings about salvation. It is very simple. Well, there's substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament, we begin with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what was God's remedy? Their remedy was leaves. But God's remedy was animal skins, which means that an animal had to be sacrificed. And we see right away that that is the idea of atonement. Something innocent must pay the penalty for someone guilty. And There it was the animal skin. We see the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I think this this helps us understand it a little bit more, the sacrificial system where they would bring their sacrifice. The sinner would bring their sacrifice to be sacrificed, but he would lay his hand on the sacrifice that was still alive. The symbolism is the transference of my sin to this sacrifice in symbolism. And then the animal was slaughtered. My sin transferred, that animal my sin, that animal my punishment. But we know that the Old Testament sacrifices were just a temporary covering until Christ, the true sacrifice, would do this. He would do this for us. So if I can, what I like is the arms of our faith are still reaching out onto our sacrifice. Christ, the arms of our faith are embracing Christ as our sacrifice. Our sins are imputed to him. And he died on the cross and took our punishment. That is the picture of salvation. However, let me say this. It's not the idea that I just have to know about that. My faith literally has to reach out and embrace him. Has to trust him. Has to receive him. Now, let me just quickly go to the New Testament before I reiterate that same point about saving faith. We come to the New Testament and there are a lot of verses that talk about Christ's atonement taking our place. And... We have some, of all things, little prepositions that become theologically big. Uh, There's the preposition anti, and then there's the preposition huper. And many times those are translated for, F-O-R, for. But it's the idea of someone for someone else, in the place of someone else, especially huper. pair means for the sake of. And we're going to take a look at a few examples. In place of. That's the heart of salvation. Jesus died for me. And I placed my faith in him. And I'm trusting and relying upon his sacrifice for my salvation and nothing else. No works. Nothing else. That is salvation. And you do hear people say, you do hear people say, well, I hope I'm... I've received Christ, but I hope I'm good enough. And you you say to yourself, those two don't fit. You're not good enough. That's why we have to go to Christ. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. There's three verses right here that use this preposition in each verse. And I think by the time... We get to verse 8. I think we certainly understand what it means. Again, the preposition is who pair in the Greek. It is the, the word that's translated for, F O R. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, in place of the ungodly. This is the great thing that God did. This is what's so great about the gospel. This is why it's the good news. Because if we were left to pay the penalty for our own sin, the Bible says it would be eternal punishment in hell. I know those concepts are are offensive to the world today. Well, I'm sorry about that. It's the truth, and they need people need to understand this and the seriousness of this. But it says that at the right time, Christ died, who pair, in place of, for the sake of. And then Paul, in his usual way, starts to reason through this. For, now this particular for is not the one we're looking at. For, there it's kind of explanatory. Let me explain. For one will hardly die for, there it is, a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. So he's backing it up and saying, "You know, if, if you have a righteous man, you could find some people who would die for them in their place." But a good man who's not necessarily righteous uh, maybe you. Maybe if they knew them, or maybe if they owed them money or something—I don't know. But it's it's moving away. But then. In a superlative way, verse 8, here it is. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet not righteous, not good, but sinners, Christ died for us in our place. The nutshell of this is to think about you, you don't have to face God about your sin, the punishment of your sin, if you trust Christ who took your sin and your punishment. It says in Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is therefore no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, when you think about these truths and you have these truths uh, and you understand what a blessing it is. So even though I'm explaining salvation as believers, this ought to be blessing us as we're thinking of how discouraging spiritual warfare could be, as we're thinking about how the difficulty we we're thinking about today, there is therefore now no condemnation. You know what? Nothing is as bad as it would seem because we know this. But we have to have the assurance of it. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And we need to understand that salvation is secure. And the more that we know these things, guess what? We can stand firm against the fiery arrows of the devil. Now, let me just quickly talk about faith and what I would call saving faith. What what it is not, and you hear so much and you get the impression from, oh, yeah, I believe that. Well, that's good. But do you know that just that kind of mere intellectual assent Even the demons do, the ones who are battling against you in spiritual warfare. James says in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder, but they're not saved. The idea is that the word believe today is more than just, oh, yeah, I believe I have this set of beliefs and I, yeah, I'll sign my name. It's the idea of reliance. Like the Old Testament sacrifice, the sinner was laying his hand on the sacrifice. Like our faith, as we think about Christ, we're relying upon him, we're trusting him and what he did. Many times, the word believe in the New Testament is accompanied by another Greek preposition, ace, which means into. And so I guess if you're literally going to translate it, you would say believe into Christ or believe on Christ. It gives the idea from that preposition that there's motion. There's motion of your faith moving and then resting on an object. The object is Christ and what he did on the cross. And so saving faith is that I believe that what Christ did is sufficient to save me, and that it's sufficient to save me the moment I place my faith in him. Not just say, okay, but the moment that I place my faith in him. Now, I want to make sure that I say this clearly. I'm not trying to make faith a works, but, but faith is an exercise. If you go to the scriptures, you'll have verbs when it comes to faith about receiving Christ. But as many as received him. So there's an act of the will there. You're receiving him. You're accepting him. You're trusting him. And then he says, even to those who believe in his name. It's a synonym. What do you mean by believe? It means to receive him or call upon him. We're instructed in Romans 10, 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's the idea of perhaps calling out in him in prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I trust you as my Savior. Save me, would be the idea. In fact, if you go through that there in Romans 10, it's the idea that the only way you could do that is if you had faith. We see in John chapter 4, we have the verb ask. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So you're asking. Another synonym is come, to come to him. Again, it's more than just belief. It's the idea that you are trusting your life, eternal life, upon him. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And I love this. You want to talk about eternal security? And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Not even when we sin. And then the one that I think about often, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. It's very simple. It's very simple gospel presentation. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Could it be any clearer? And you look at the word has. It's the idea of having, possessing, embracing. And I I like that synonym that that the arms of my faith want to to receive Christ and my arms of my faith embrace him as my Savior. And by the way, you You continue to trust in him that way throughout the Christian life. But that is the first part. That is salvation. So as I'm talking about this, again, uh, you know, I want to be careful uh, because you you hear different testimonies and people are saved and they just use the word believe and that's fine because that's what the scripture says. But I want us to understand that believe is a little bit more than just, yeah, let me sign on the dotted line. I'm part of your group now. No, it is a matter of calling on the Lord. It's a matter of reaching out and trusting him, taking him as your savior. You've heard the expression, a person can miss heaven by 18 inches. It's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And I think there's some truth to that. The great reformer John Murray said, this idea of faith, it's a transference of reliance upon ourselves. See, that's where we start. We're trusting our good works. I'm good enough. I'm not the best guy, but I'm better than my neighbor. And I'm only saying that facetiously because my neighbor is a deputy sheriff. Okay, so okay, so don't go telling him that I said I was better than him. All right. Uh, it's a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is not simply believing him. It is believing in him. It is believing on him. And so this is what salvation is about. Understanding it and then our faith. and, And you know, as a believer, you look back and you say, man, I can't believe that anyone would not want to receive Christ after hearing this, that he died for my sins, and yet I remember a time when I ran the opposite way from Christians and their message. Well, I'm not running anymore, and one day I stood and listened and embraced Christ. I want to get to this next point because I think this is more to what Paul is referring to is as the assurance of salvation, but I wanted to share that about this understanding. I think we as elders, and I think we as teachers of Grace Bible Church, need to kick up the notch of the explanation of the gospel. Uh, I, and, and when you see this in other churches, you just wonder, is the gospel even being given out? Um, in Sunday school today, Lou was talking about the minor prophet Amos, and God was talking about a famine. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather the hearing the words of the Lord. And I think there's a lot of people who are responsible who fill pulpits and do not explain the gospel and then send their kids off to Bible college and those kids have no clue what the gospel is. If you don't know what the gospel is, you've got to be questioning, are they even saved? They may be, they just may not be able to articulate it. I do, know, um, I do know individuals that were saved and go to a church that isn't necessarily teaching them and then they're struggling. They're struggling because they're not hearing the word and getting bolstered up. And by the way, you could see right then and there, that's how Satan can use that to defeat a person, to discourage a person, to always have them in salvation limbo. But we move now to assurance of salvation. So when you trust Christ as your Savior, and you believe that you were a sinner, and you believe that Christ died for you, and you've trusted him, you've placed your faith, you're relying upon him, then you should have an assurance of your salvation. Not from an emotion, though that may be part of it. You may be singing a hymn about how much the Father loves us, and how my sins held Christ on the cross, and that may be emotional to you, probably should be emotional to you, but that's not what I'm talking about. Assurance of salvation is knowing that the scripture says, so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Just on this point, I want to say that, you know, over the years of talking to many Christians, I would say that probably the majority of christians that i know have experienced doubts of salvation at one time or other Uh, especially a young believer you're you're not quite sure of all the promises of the word of god and security and so you doubt and um i've even talked to and you know individuals or they you know received trusted christ again which you don't have to do but i get it i get it i know i talked to uh, young people that they say, yeah, I received Christ at a young age. and But then when I got older, I understood it better. And, and I just wanted to make sure. I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, so it seems somewhat common. But I also know some individuals that really struggle with it, struggle with it for years um, and have a difficult time. Well, let me just say that Satan can have a heyday with that. And he will have it. You can't go forward because you're going, well, maybe I'm not even a Christian. When you are a Christian and you can have those doubts and still be a Christian. We'll talk through this. But this is so important that I believe this is why Paul added the piece of the armor, the helmet of salvation. I believe it's primarily because of being secure, standing firm in the salvation that you have. Someone writes this, the other and closely related edge of Satan's sword is the doubt that often brings discouragement. Doubts about the truths of God, including doubt about one's salvation, are the worst discouragements for a believer, and that's true. If he can get you worried about that, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Doesn't matter how good things are going, if you're struggling with that. If a believer doubts God's goodness or dependability, or if his relation to God seems uncertain, he has no ground for hope, and therefore no protection from discouragement and the evil one. The person who thinks he has nothing worthwhile to look forward to, heaven, salvation, has no reason to fight, no reason to work, no reason to live responsibly. So that's what we have here. So let's talk about assurance of salvation for just a moment. And the first thing is assurance is the biblical teaching that believers may know that in this life that they are saved and have eternal life. Have you ever heard from somebody say, well... I don't know. Only God knows that. Well, that's true, except that God has told us. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Yes, God is the only one who knows, but God has revealed it to us in his word. Specifically, in one part, through the Apostle John, in First John chapter 5, verse 13, tells us why he wrote these things. So really, if you want to know, First John is a book that gives you assurance of salvation. It says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. So it would be possible for a believer to have received Christ, but still not know for sure if they're saved. Well, today, let's put an end to that. Today, let let you be encouraged. We can know that we have eternal life. What would be some of the reasons for a lack of assurance? Well, I'm only going to give three. There could be many more. But the first one is a lack of knowledge. That you don't know the word and so you don't know these promises. And let me tell you, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You are bolstered by the word of God. This is how you become secure. You don't become secure by just trusting Christ and then staying away from the church, staying away from the Bible, staying away from prayer. You become a target. And so, a lack of knowledge and ignorant of the doctrines of assurance, you may experience doubts. It could be a lack of faith. Maybe your faith is struggling. Uh, Again, how does that get fixed? I think it's the same thing. Through the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But I remember Paul wrote, or we know that Paul wrote, and I remembered it as I was studying this and It says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In fact, we even sing that hymn. And this this idea of you are persuaded through the word of God, putting these truths together. All those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Do you mean might be saved? No. All those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Did I call upon the name of the Lord? I trust that you have. And if you did, you just put your name right in there. You are persuaded from the promises of God. A third reason outside of the lack of knowledge and the lack of faith and growth could be a lack of victory or said in a different way. If a believer is giving in habitually to sin or has unconfessed sin in his life, he may experience guilt and accusing thoughts that he is not a true believer. And that's because one of the assurances of salvation is a changed life. If nothing has changed, one might sit down and kind of work through this. There, now, again, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. Uh, The verbiage in 1 John gives us the idea that you cannot sin. It's not what it means. It's given with the verb that means continuous, habitual. If you are habitually sinning and don't even care, something's not right. Something is not right. And so if, but even if it's not on that kind of a level, but if it's in a level of unconfessed sin or giving into a sin, besetting sin, you may experience guilt and accusing thoughts and you may battle with this. Well, what's the remedy there? I surrender all. That's the remedy. You, you go on to victory. You say no to sin. We talked about the new nature that we have in the book of Ephesians. And you say no to sin, but you say yes to God because he's given you that new nature. He's given you that power and the Holy Spirit. You can do it. You are able to do it through him. It's sad when we don't. And, 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 and this is all, there isn't any of us that haven't sinned since we've been believers. And I quote R.C. Sproul again. He said, you and your wife can sin enough from your home to church to send you to hell. Okay? How, how does he know that? I don't know. But it's true. Any sin. And it's just a matter of giving into the flesh. We, we, there's got to be a commitment, a commitment for victory. Lord, I'm sorry for this and uh, forgive me. Uh, confess your sins and then and then make a commitment. Uh, there's there's some who don't believe that you should have a commitment in the eternal in, in the Christian life. I, I can't imagine in any other way. I, I guess I guess you would just say, well, I'm just going to let go and let God. Well, that that only works in salvation. That doesn't work in sanctification. We're supposed to work out our sanctification with fear and trembling. Well, what then are those things that are the basis for assurance of salvation? Well, let me give you a few. First of all, God's word. This is so huge. This is so huge. You know, Romans 12 tells us that... uh, We can't give in to the world that's always drawing us, but we have to renew our mind. So if you're having doubts about salvation, how do you renew that? By getting the word and getting the promises. God's word is the ultimate authority of the believer's salvation. It's the word of God that tells us what the gospel is. And then we know through our own experience that we did trust in Christ alone by faith alone. Well, that puts us in the category of the saved, and we can have assurance. And again, the Apostle John wrote as much in the Gospel of John. It's as if he knew us, or perhaps he even doubted at times. But the purpose for writing the Gospel of John was, but these have been written so that you might believe. Number one, that Jesus is the Christ who died on the cross for your sin. Number two, the Son of God. And that believing, notice the the uh, participle there. Believing the action by believing, you may have life in His name. It's the word of God. When a sinner has embraced Christ alone for salvation, he then is saved, and he can have this assurance. But it's the word of God that assures. It's not my thinking. It's not your pastor's thinking. It's not these notes, which I believe could be very helpful. It's not these notes, but it's God's word that tells us what salvation is and who's saved and who's not saved. By the way, it does tell us who's not saved. And so, you know, some people say, well, I can't judge. Well, no, but you can be a fruit inspector. And sometimes it becomes very obvious when someone is not a believer, even though they may say they are, and then they tell you, well, yeah, I hit a patch of ice, started to spin, yelled out, God saved me. He did, and so now I'm his child. The second second basis for assurance would be God's attributes, particularly his attribute of faithfulness. God is faithful to carry out all that he has promised. He has never broken a promise to anyone, not even Israel. And he still has a promise outstanding to Israel, which will be fulfilled. And so we look at his promises And we see that we have an anchor for our soul. I love that phrase. And that phrase is in Hebrews chapter 6. I'll I'll ask you to turn there, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6. You find out that God doesn't want us to struggle with doubts. You find out that God has done everything he could do to eliminate doubts if you're his child. Now, if you're not his child, then he would want you to have doubts so that you would turn to Christ. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, talks about God in the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And of course, you realize after studying the Bible that the word hope is different in the Bible than it is in Webster. It's a, it's, it's the, it is the reality of it apprehended by faith. And then he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And that's what we should have. That's what the helmet of salvation is talking about, an anchor for the soul. No matter how bad spiritual warfare gets, no matter how bad the circumstances, no matter how discouraged you may be in other areas, the one area you should never be discouraged in is doubts of salvation. You have an anchor for your soul. It is God's word and God's attribute. Thirdly, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Now, I don't believe this is an emotional thing, okay? I, I'm, I'm not anti-emotional. I'm semi-anti-emotional. I'm, I, I'm anti-emotional when it comes to this is how we live our life as Christians. And we've seen that down through the years in Christianity. We've moved away from expository preaching to more... Uh, emotional preaching, and this is how we move people. Yeah, you give them a warm fuzzy. And guess what? The very first thing to go when tri- trials come are warm fuzzies. They're great when you can hang on to them. But the the word of God is that anchor for the soul. And that's what will take you through the storm. And the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And what I believe this is, is that to, given the word of God, given the fact that we've trusted Christ, given the fact of, that God can't change, the Holy Spirit is, is moving in our soul to say, Amen, Amen. That's the Holy Spirit. I think also, too, when there's Christian fruit in our life, and we have to be careful, because the first thing we don't want to do is be proud of it. Because we've just lost the Christian fruit. If we're proud of it. But it's the idea that. It's the idea. That I'm not what I should be. But praise God. I'm not what I was. That is the Christian fruit. That's the message of the Christian fruit. And it will guard Satan from you. Now. I'd like to go through these, and this is probably all we're going to be able to do. Um, I'm going to have to save security for next week. But let me just say you are secure if you're a believer. You're eternally secure, so you don't have to wait one week to be eternally secure. We'll we'll finish that up next week. But I do want to talk about these things that are the the kinds of Christian fruit that are in our lives if we are a believer. It says that... In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, again, I'm not holding up a, a list of perfection here. Um, there, there are no such things as a Christian perfectionist. There's people who believe that, but they're wrong. They're in error. What they do is they change the definition of sin. Well, anybody could be perfect if you change the definition of sin. But the truth of the matter is we still wrestle and struggle with it. But these are things that are going to, they're like fruit. They don't come out at first, but give it a little water, a little sunshine. They're going to come out eventually. And Christians grow at different rates. I think one of the things that catapults a believer to grow is being in the word, being in the word daily. That's what's going to cause you to grow and sprout and be Whatever the word is that I'm trying to think of. (laughs) Stables. You are rooted. You are grounded. All right, the first one would be fellowship with God. That's the first thing that I think becomes a reality when you are a believer. Um, So you're a sinner and you're not used to praying, or if you did pray, it's just a rote, memory, recited prayer. But when you become a believer, all of a sudden you are you are really talking to God. And and it doesn't mean that you necessarily had someone teach you that. You may have questions about it. You can ask someone, but you you feel a lot freer praying to God who is your Father. Um, I remember that when I trusted Christ, uh, I was at work, um, and uh, it was the evening shift. I got stuck on the night shift, and I was a young man and knew that my life was now over. I'm now on the night shift, but little did I know that I was going to hear the gospel on a radio broadcast, and I received Christ. And one of the first things I did was I went up on the roof to pray. Um, I I wanted to pray. And uh, I did that for several nights until the supervisor came up and said, what are you doing? (laughs) I said, well, I'm... (laughs) I'm praying. He said, well, I don't mind you praying, but can you do it somewhere else other than the roof? So anyway, um, uh, why is that? Well, there's several reasons. But one of the reasons is that you now are a child of God, his spirit is in you. And the spirit helps you cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. So it's. I always think of somebody getting into some situation and what's the first thing you cry out to? Well, if you're an unbeliever, who knows? It's probably expletives. But if you're a believer, the first thing in your heart is, God, help me. Because he's now your father. Abba, father means daddy, daddy. It says, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You see the stability there, the rootedness, the groundedness? This keeps you from the enemy's attack. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. And, and and that's about the best I can explain it. The only way we can explain it is if you're a believer and you go, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It, it is that heart cry for God. The second thing would be, and you know I'm going to say it, is a desire for God's word. I, I, I uh, you you just you want to learn and you know it's you know it's in the word. Um, I, I remember coming to Christ, and um, my aunt was a believer, and and we uh, somehow met up at one point, and I guess I didn't even know I was a Christian, but I knew that I trusted Christ, and and she said, "Well, you're a Christian," and she went through the plan of salvation, and um, and so every night. I was going out to her house and she was discipling me. It was great until one night I knocked on the door and she's there in a house coat. She has dark rings under her eyes and she just stood at the door and went like this. No, she told me to go to the Bible Institute that they had there in the town. She had given so much that she was just weary. But there's that desire for the word of God. The psalmist said, oh, how I love Now, you would think the psalmist would say, I love you, Lord, and he does. But he says in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. First, Peter tells us that as believers like newborn babies, it doesn't mean that we are, doesn't mean that we stay babies, but like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation in the, the remainder of your salvation, meaning you're already saved, now you're growing in sanctification. And, of course, I have grandchildren. I don't really quite remember my own children when they were nursing and drinking milk and all of that, but my grandchildren, they just, man, it's like the animal comes out of them, give me that thing, and, and down it goes. So and and that, that ought to be similar to us and and um, you know coming to church is one of the aspects of that coming to the ch- church where you're hearing the word of God and in the Sunday schools that we have for your children and the the worship service. Thirdly, is an awareness of sin. Now you may know you were a sinner before that. You need to know you were a sinner when you got saved. You you can't you can't be saved unless you admit and acknowledge that you're a sinner and. He died for those sins. But there's a new awareness. I, I used, I, I, I've said at times that I used to be a good sinner. Never bothered me. But now when I sin, it bothers me. That doesn't mean that I don't ever sin. But when I do, I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit. Well, in 1 John, it says, and this is he's talking to believers here. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's the remedy. If we confess our sins, just agree. You're, you're right, God. Your Bible, your word calls this a sin. This, is, this was in my thought, my word, my action. I've sinned against you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Talk about an assurance. You are a believer, you are secure as a believer, but you may sin and it may interrupt your your fellowship, not your relationship. Well, how do you straighten that out? You confess it. We ought to be a confessing people. Confession, should not, confession to God should not be a problem or foreign to us. And then he says again, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So I hope I've never stood up here and acted like I've got it all together and you need to act like he. I I I'm a sinner just like you, and I'm I'm trying to pursue maturity just like you, and I I know that it's through the word, and so that's what that's what I want to do to help build up the body. The next thing is a kinship of believers. You know this. You've gone someplace and met someone for the first time. Found out that they were a believer, and it's like instantly, it's like, you know hey, I know you. Yeah, you go to my church. Yeah, yeah, you're just like the rest of the Christians that I know. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and, and it's almost as if the gleam is in their eye, and the gleam is in your eye, and it's like, I know what you know, what you know that I know, and they don't know. <laughs> it's a tremendous thing, but it goes even further than that. There ought to be love. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is a mark. That's a fruit. That's one of the things that should come out. There should be a love for brethren. Uh, John also says in 1 John, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That is, that is a fruit. That is a Christian fruit. And then I'll add this last one, a passion for souls. There should be a passion for souls. And, and at times evangelism is very daunting and very, uh, makes us feel awkward, uh, anxious. But still in all, there's that I want to do it. I, I just can't. Okay, well, good. We'll help you get over that. You know, that's what we all need to do to get over that because there, we have a passion. And, and you know, I must say there are times when there's someone in your, your life, your family, a neighbor, someone that you know, and you're saying, they don't know Christ. I've got to tell them. I've got to tell them. Lord, help me. Because it seems like when the moment comes... Uh, the subject gets changed, and you you don't have that springboard, or you're there. The springboard is there, but you just don't take that step. But this passion, this burden, um, you know, I, I've I've got to share. Whether they receive Christ, whether they don't ever want to talk to me again, I. But I've got to share Christ. And and you know, there's there's an even bigger passion, like evangelists and missionaries, which we should all be that. The whole world that doesn't know Christ is dying and going to hell. Do we not care in the least? Do we just get what we got and that's it? That's, that's not good and that's not right. And I, I doubt that's our case. Um, I, love, I love the Thessalonians. When Paul writes to them, evidently they were doing it. It was actually a fruit coming out. He says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything to you. Can you believe that? Okay, so you come to a church as a pastor. You want to tell them many things. And then you say, but the one thing I don't have to tell you about is evangelizing because you guys are doing great. Wow. Wow. That he would say that about me, us, and this church. As we think about these things then, as we think about uh, our assurance of salvation, it certainly is something, again, that helps us to stand firm. All of these pieces help us to stand firm. Even the sword of the spirit we'll talk about next week after we talk about security. But it's the idea that Satan is going to get in. And I I think, I mean, they're all bad. If Satan gets in underneath the armor, if you, if you don't have the armor, gets into any of these, they're all bad. But this is the one that's going to leave you unable to go forward because you're always in doubt. Well, I can't go forward to teach. I'm doubting my own salvation. I can't share Christ with anyone else because I'm doubting my own salvation. And there's a, there's a part to that that's true because if you, if you don't act like you believe it, why should they believe it? But here's the thing. If you are a believer, you could be doubting your salvation and you're still secure in your faith. One writes this Although a Christian's feelings about his salvation may be seriously damaged by Satan inspired doubt, his salvation itself is eternally protected and he need not fear its loss. So even a doubting of salvation is not a takes you out of the hand of the Lord. We can't, no one can take you out of the hand of the Lord. Not even yourself. You are eternally secure. And it's these promises in the word of God. Satan wants to curse the believer with doubts. But the Christian can be strong in get God's promises of eternal salvation in scripture. And we'll talk about those, and security next week. But let's pray. Father, first of all, I I pray, Lord, that if there's one here who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would, in their own heart at this moment, come to you and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I now trust you and take you as my savior, save me, Lord, make me one of your children, forgive my sins and give me eternal life. And at that moment, Lord, that faith in Christ, they are saved eternally. Father, for us who are saved, Lord, help us to understand the importance of these pieces. And not only that, Lord, but there is a serious battle going on. Thank you that Christ has won that victory But we do know that even Jesus called Satan the God of this world, meaning that he has temporary control over it here on earth. Nevertheless, you, God, Father, are in complete sovereign control. But we do pray, Lord, that we would know these truths. These truths would cause our lives to shine and to stand firm. And Father, when we go to share it with others, Lord, they would see that firmness. They would see that affirmation and that assurance, and they would ask the question, could I come to Christ? Could I have that assurance that I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven? Oh, Lord, that you would use us in such a way, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.